0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, August 3rd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, sometimes veterans' mobility makes it hard for agencies to find them. Plus, the Forest Service introduces minority students to woodland firefighting this summer. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, telecommunications giants say the United States is short on bandwidth to develop, you got it, 5G. The Defense Department has concerns about auctioning off certain parts of the broadband spectrum for 5G because it uses them for radar. Defense chiefs say they need the spectrum for national security. Now, a report due out next month on the section of bandwidth known as the lower three may finally break the stalemate. We get details from Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. And Alex, tell us more about this report, who's doing it and why it's so important.
0: Well, Tom, to give you a little bit of background, the FCC auctions off bandwidth to industry, and that's how telecommunications companies get their bandwidth. So last March, they have an authorization from Congress to auction off this bandwidth, and that authorization expired. Members of Congress wanted to restart the auctions, but they don't want the FCC to be able to touch the part of the spectrum that the Defense Department uses. It's what's called the lower three. It's 3.1 gigahertz to 3.45 gigahertz. Some of
1: my favorite flavors.
0: (laughs) There you go. And it's currently controlled by the Defense Department. So Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota and Senator Mazie Hirono of Hawaii have sponsored legislation since March to extend those auctions, but their efforts have failed. And at a recent Senate Armed Services Committee hearing on the nomination of Air Force General C.Q. Brown to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Senator Rounds asked General Brown what he wanted to do with this bandwidth.
1: That part of the spectrum is where we, we have many of our capabilities across the uh, the joint force. And if we had to vacate that, um, we'd lose that capability and we'd have to figure out how now to regain that capability. And that will take time and cost money. And now it's not the time. To to drop our, our national security. My recommendation is it, we should not vacate, and realizing we have to still get through the study before we make any decisions. But if there will be an impact, and, and if confirmed, I'll I'll bring uh, with, with the services you know detailed information on the uh, the challenges how it might impact the joint force. So he's hanging on that study also, and uh, what's it all about?
0: Everybody seems to be waiting for that study. It's a joint study conducted by the Defense Department and the National Telecommunications and Information Administration to determine the risks and the capabilities of that lower three broadband. And... It, the the study itself was mandated by Congress and it has to be in by September. So when Senator Rounds proposed extending the auctions last March, his idea was that they only be extended until September, at which point the report is due and everyone can decide what the liabilities of, the, of selling off that part of the broadband is. He was very clear that any authority, however, to continue the auctions had to exclude the lower three, at least until more information is gathered as everyone's debating what to do with that lower 3 spectrum industry and the fcc is saying hey we need this right now china's getting ahead of us the whole world has is going to have better 5g than us and we are have this big shortage of broadband to continue developing 5G technology. So in addition to the report coming out, there's a World Radio Communications Conference coming up at the end of the year, and that's where everyone decides what their wireless policy is going to be. At a Center for Strategic and International Studies forum on 5G, FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel talked about some of the challenges she faces with broadband policy.
2: We are challenged in the United States because we are having a harder time identifying how to repurpose mid-band spectrum for new commercial use, and that's not the case in other countries. We're also challenged in the United States because for the first time in three decades, the FCC Spectrum Auction Authority, which is a tool we use to distribute these airwaves, has lapsed, and Congress is going to need to renew it. So this conference is going to be more challenging than ones that came before. And I'd like us to enter it from a position of strength, and that would mean supporting more mid spectrum with uh, United States plans in mind and also having that spectrum auction authority. I think if we can have both of those things, we'll have the wind at our backs. Yeah,
1: yeah so that message needs to travel down from CSIS to Capitol Hill, like give us that authority or restore it. And what does the FCC say about the whole security question around 5G and all of this bandwidth?
0: She said it's really important to have national security. And <laughs> I agree. <Yeah. laughs> uh, she said everyone wants to make sure that our bandwidth is secure and that the Defense Department has what they need. But she also thinks that we can innovate, that compromises can be reached, and in the end, the country should be able to expand its commercial broadband and also keep the Pentagon happy.
2: I think it's in our bones that national security comes first. I mean, it's the duty of every public servant to think about mm-hmm. public safety. But I think this zero-sum game that we've managed to create is not yielding any benefits at this point. I think we have to recognize that we are incredibly creative when it comes to technology in this country. And if we can develop spectrum policy that supports that creativity, what we're gonna do is build industries, technologies, services, that are going to develop and support the civilian economy, but they're also going to help support our national security.
1: Well, either way, industry likes a little bit of incentive to do that, you might say. And so what is industry saying about this, Alexandra?
2: They're saying that they have a big
0: shortage of broadband and they want to develop and they have customers to reach, but they can't do it unless they get more bandwidth and unless these auctions start again. They've also got a problem with the the defense department and their radars interfering with the, with industry's broadband. So they also want to make sure that as they expand, they don't have a whole lot of in, interference. From from the Defense Department radar systems. So that all needs to be solved. And they want to move forward and they have some concerns about what's going to come out with this report and whether or not it's actually going to help them. Here's a vice president of global security and technology policy at AT&T, Christopher Boyer.
1: Just speaking for AT&T and I think for the whole industry, I mean, we, we certainly want to don't want to see DOD lose critical capabilities to secure the country, right, from a national security standpoint. No one is advocating that Um, they should lose functionality. The question is, ultimately, is how do we balance out the needs of DoD with the needs of the industry? And I think from an industry perspective, you know, we're seeing the wireless networks are continuing to grow. Everybody's using wireless. The the capacity that's being put over the networks is growing infinitely. uh, And so the need for more spectrum is is, is pretty glaring. And so I guess my biggest concern with the report is that we can, um, and not to be overly pessimistic, but that we continue to kind of admire the problem, but don't actually move forward. I just wish... I could find a more compelling case for all this wireless capability other than FaceTiming on the Metro or playing ridiculous games because people are too bored to read a book. I mean, there's got to be some good industrial need for this that advances society too, but I guess that didn't come up in that particular situation, did it?
0: Not really, but I would assume that if you're going to use cloud storage capabilities for everyone to use their own devices, which we've been talking about for, say, the Army, they're going to need to have pretty good capability to move that data back and forth.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, that's right. Cloud access is a big issue for the military. And of course, there are areas where there is no bandwidth at all. And so it's part of a complex of problems of access to data, whether you're in a rich environment or an austere environment. And tough questions. Well, they managed to take the 7 gigahertz frequency away from churches and their wireless microphones, and that got replaced and works fine. So maybe there is hope for some, uh, some technical innovation.
0: Well, I think after that report comes out, maybe they can move forward with at least extending the auctions so they can get something done out there.
1: Yeah, the auctions are a Amazing process. And the FCC has become good at them over the past 30 or so years that they've had that authority. So and we know you'll be on top of what comes next.
0: Can't wait to hear what happens with the report.
1: Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Forest Service introduces minority students to woodland firefighting this summer. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The U.S. has experienced a hot summer so far, yet one group of students from Historically Black Colleges and Universities, HBUCs, are spending their time in heavy gear learning to fight wildfires. It's part of a partnership between the U.S. Forest Service and four HBCUs. Here with the details, the National Diversity Student Programs Manager, Stephanie Love. Ms. Love, good to have you with us.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: First, let's talk about what these students are doing this summer and about this program.
3: Absolutely. So having a pipeline of students pursuing an education in forestry and fire is crucial as the wildland fire crisis continues to rise. So we bring in a group of students from four HBCUs in the South, that's Tuskegee University, Alabama A&M University, Southern University and Florida A&M University to train at the only on-site wildland fire academy hosted at an hbcu in the nation and they get classes certification opportunities and the opportunity to practice live fire before being released out into the the world of work to pursue an internship um, after their training period is over so they've received their training by now and they're all out Um, working internships for the U.S. Forest Service.
1: Wow. So the training took place at one of the colleges. Which one and what kind of facilities does it have there?
3: Alabama A&M University is the host university. They are the only SAF accredited forestry degree program and an HBCU in the nation, ranked number nine out of all forestry schools in the nation. So it's only right that we would be there. They have a research forest where we can put live fire on the ground. And of course, all of the academic facilities that we need to host an educational academy.
1: And this is a residency program that they had?
3: Yes. They spend 28 days on campus. They get a chance to live in the dorms, eat in the calf and study in the facilities, go out to the field. And the university hosted um, research sites.
1: Well, that must be some final exam. To, to Do you have to put out a fire to be able to get your certification?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Now, in their internships now, that's what the status of these students is now. They are actually interns with the uh, Forest Service?
3: Yes, most of them, and some of them with private industry. We put them in a position where they compete well for any forestry or fire position that they, they want in the nation, whether it's federal, of course, we want them to come and work for us, or private. So yeah. they're all across the country, from Oregon, all the way to North Carolina.
1: And are they all firefighting or they're doing other things that might be related to forestry because there's a lot of topics in forestry.
3: Absolutely. Some of them are doing wildlife biology. Some of them are doing soil science. Some of them are doing forest inventory and forestry, but they all have a collateral duty of wildland firefighting. So when the time comes, they're certified and ready to answer the call when dispatched to the fire.
1: We're speaking with Stephanie Love. She is the National Diversity Student Programs Manager at the U.S. Forest Service. And tell us more about the National Diversity Student Programs themselves. This one was firefighting. What are some of the other ones that you offer?
3: You know, diversity is one of the core values of the U.S. Forest Service. And we recognize that we have an opportunity to do better in building diversity. Society of American Foresters, according to them, African-Americans and Hispanics make up 1.9% and 3.6% of bachelor's degrees in agricultural and natural resources sciences. So to help address this need, we have partnered with HBCUs in many areas, not just forestry and fire and special uses administration. We have a similar camp that we invite students to participate in um, from any HBCUs. We have full ride scholarships for the scholars who are eligible to you know pursue a career working for the great outdoors, but maybe not necessarily in the great outdoors, like computer science and accounting and business, anything that you can think of that supports the mission critical occupations of our agencies. We have initiatives to support increased diversity and in creating pipelines for these students to um, be employed by our agency.
1: And I guess once they become employed, either, as you say, at the agency or at state agencies, perhaps, or in industry, because there's a big industry around forestry, they can become maybe agents for people to fo- like them to follow them into those fields.
3: Absolutely. that That's how I got here. 24 years ago, I came in through a scholars program as a forester and, you know, have moved around in the agency and found something that I really like to do, which is bringing this whole thing full circle and talking to students who were once like myself. You know, these are underrepresented careers, especially among people of color. Many of the students may, may have never heard of forestry or fire or recognize it as an career of choice. My mission is to outreach, to create and increase awareness that working for the great outdoors is a career choice and an academic choice. And we're getting super response from the student population.
1: And how many students go through the various programs in a given year and maybe give us a roll up of how many over the years that you have run through the program?
3: Wow, through the years we have, you know, almost 200 students have come through these programs over the years. We host about 15 students per year in the Wildland Forestry and Fire Program, and the Special Uses Program is just getting ramped up, and we hope to host about 10 this year. So um, we're on a roll.
1: And just define for special uses in the context of forestry.
3: Permits have to be issued on National Forest Land for filming of movies and mining and mineral and root harvesting, Christmas tree harvesting, um, all of the wonderful natural resources and accesses to the national resource that we have on national forest lands have to go through a permitting process. And that happens through our special uses division. That's just another way that we continue to, you know, fully engage with the communities that we serve We want to reflect the richness and diversity throughout our agency and all the mission-critical occupations that allow us to do business.
1: These programs are selective. That is to say, you get more applicants than you can fit in each year?
3: Yes, we do. We get more applicants than we can fit in each year, and it's competitive. So there are GPA requirements for some of them. It's highly competitive.
1: Sure. How do you follow up? after they leave the program, and do you follow them throughout their early parts of their careers?
3: Oh, yes. We've been tracking since the 90s. This particular program hasn't been going on through the 90s, but we've had diversity initiatives that have been going on with our, you know, partnerships with our agency since 1992. And we, we've tracked every single student from all initiatives since 1992, including myself. Yeah, so So,
1: you're a success story of this yourself.
3: Absolutely.
1: Now, you've got an administrative office type of job, though. Do you ever get out into the forest yourself once in a while and just hug a tree?
3: Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I miss it so much. Um, And programs like this give me the opportunity to share my experiences and, you know, creates nostalgia for myself. Um, I can go back in time when I was, you know, young like the students and enjoying the outdoors and I still do so absolutely I get out there every now and then.
1: Well you sound like a great mentor. Stephanie Love is the National Diversity Student Programs Manager at the U.S. Forest Service. Thanks so much for joining me.
3: Thank you so much for having
1: me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, this federal team put the last few pieces into the human genome puzzle. But first, sometimes veterans' mobility makes it harder for agencies to find them. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Minority and low-income military veterans tend to move more than other veterans, and often they cross state lines, which makes it harder for state governments to identify them. That's according to research by the credit and identity services firm TransUnion. For the implications of veterans' migrations, TransUnion's Director of Research and Consulting, Greg Schlichter. Mr. Schlichter, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me.
4: I'm excited to be here.
1: Tell us about this research. What were you trying to discover and what did you find out here?
4: Well, you know, it's no surprise, I think, to your listeners that government agencies have been under pressure to shift to a customer-first mindset and rework customer experiences to improve accessibility, efficiency, uh, security. And one of the agencies that is making large strides in that area is the VA. That's the federal VA. Now, their mandate to improve customer experiences is trickling down to state veterans departments. And we were wondering, what are some of those big pain points when it comes to the customer experiences that are overseen by state veterans departments? And while we were doing our research, what we came to realize was what we think one of the biggest problems facing state's veterans departments is, is that they just don't know much about their veteran population. They don't know how many veterans are in their states. They don't know how to contact them. They don't know quite what services they might be more or less interested in. And so what we did to suss out that hypothesis is do an analysis of what we call veteran mobility. We were really just looking at veteran relocation across state lines to understand how often veterans are moving into new Jurisdictions and how that compares to non veterans.
1: And what was your methodology for determining that?
4: What we really did was analyze the information we have available to us as a credit bureau, so people's credit files, you can see change of address, as well as some alternative data assets. So think, you know, utility bills, sometimes payday loans, car registrations, all that fun stuff to just get a sense of how often are people moving across state lines. And we looked over the past five years, so we have a little bit of pre-pandemic, pandemic, pandemic, and and post-pandemic in there.
1: And you were also able to determine some of the characteristics of those that are the most mobile or the most migratory, let's say, in terms of their income and ethnicity?
4: Let's unpack that for a second here. Our headline finding is that veterans moved across state lines at more than double the rate of non-veterans over the past five years. So if you look at the past three years, let's say, the veteran population, our sample, about six percent of them moved. And that compares to about two and a half percent of non-veterans. So a little more than double the rate. That disparity was particularly pronounced within certain demographic groups, notably racial and ethnic minorities, low-income veterans, and non-homeowning veterans, who, again, were closer to three times more likely than their non-veteran peers to have moved across state lines.
1: And we're talking about people that have moved or relocated while they are veterans. That is to say, they didn't leave their military location and move across state lines.
4: Correct. Correct. So what we did was look for people who were separated from service and when we're talking about moves to different locations, we excluded anything that was what we call a military affiliated address. So like a zip code that's obviously a base or, you know, sure. right around a base or you're going to Guam or something like that.
1: And how much of this is simply older veterans retiring to Florida or Arizona or wherever, you know, the place they want to go?
4: So that is certainly part of it from what we're seeing. We did not specifically analyze point to point moves So not looking at who's moving from point A and going to point B. But what we found of particular note would be two things. One is that across all age bands, we looked at veterans 30 to 70, age 30 to 70. Across all of those ages, the veteran group was more likely to move than the non-veteran group. So your 65 to 70-year-old veterans were more likely to move than 65 to 70-year-old non-veterans. The second thing that we noticed as well is that predominantly the movers we're seeing are younger Younger veterans, I I think these are people who are recently separating from service and are trying to figure out where do they want to start a career, where do they want to put down roots, where do they want to begin to build their lives.
1: We're speaking with Greg Schlichter. He's Director of Research and Consulting at TransUnion. And so what is the implication of this? For example, is there a revenue sharing or revenue transfer from the federal government to state veterans' agencies such that if you don't get a good headcount, you don't get a good, accurate amount of money from the federal government?
4: Absolutely. States are allocated federal funds proportionate to their veteran population, and those assist with service delivery, with just program administration, things like that. I think another benefit to having an accurate headcount and accurate contact information, not just a number, but how to reach these people that helps veterans departments also be better community partners. That type of intelligence can enable them to assist nonprofits, universities, local businesses with their own veteran engagement efforts.
1: And what about the VA itself, the federal VA? Is there any practical effect of this migratory pattern on it?
4: I think so. The VA or even the DOD is the agency of record when it comes to pe- not only people's service records, but also potentially their current contact information. And if you think about that 6% statistic I referenced earlier, 6% of the veterans we saw had moved state lines over the past three years. If we spin it a different way, it means that the veteran administration's or the DOD's contact information for 6% of their veterans is potentially out of date. And that just creates a whole host of problems when you think about federal efforts to engage constituents and improve experiences and and all that sort of stuff.
1: All right. So how do you find the veterans? I guess I'm leading to the fact that TransUnion happens to have a product in this area.
4: We do. We have a proprietary method for finding veterans that I don't think I can go too in the weeds on. But I can tell you as a proof point, we are currently working with three states on this product that we call Veteran Connect. And in those engagements with those states, what we're seeing is we're able to provide headcounts and contact information for 120% or so of the estimated in state veteran population. So that means we're finding more in state veterans than the states themselves thought they had, and we're able to tell you how to contact them.
1: Well, at some point, some states are going to have less because everybody can't have 120%. <laughs> yeah.
4: Luckily, we've hit, we're have hit. we on the upper end of that 100% mark.
1: And where are there more, generally, more veterans than they thought? Tell us some of the states.
4: You can't tell you the states we're working with. And again, our analysis was not designed to track point-to-point movement. But what I can tell you, and again, caveat, this could be a sampling error because we weren't set up to do this. We are seeing a slight preference amongst veterans for moving to exurb and rural locations compared to their non-veteran peers.
1: City outskirts, and what about north, south, east, west, southwest, northeast, southwest, east, west, whatever?
4: (laughs) The migratory pattern we saw does follow those of the general U.S. population. So I believe it was California has been seeing a pretty significant outflow of people and they're moving to places like Texas, I know has been a big attractor, Florida, and that's affecting, I think, every U.S. citizen, not, not just veterans in particular.
1: Interesting. And I imagine then this type of lookup service or this type of migratory research can apply to a lot of other federal agencies.
4: I think it could, if if there is a population that you need to track and there's this operational model where you've got a kind of a federal overseer and a bunch of state franchises, having this sort of information can ease information flows and make sure everyone has the most up-to-date contact information, the most up-to-date, it's called market sizing information for the populations they are trying to serve.
1: Greg Schlichter is Director of Research and Consulting at TransUnion. Thanks so much for joining me.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: And we'll post this interview along with a link to the research at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, this federal team put the last few pieces into that human genome puzzle. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Like so many projects, sequencing human genomes has gotten harder the closer the work has come to completion. A National Institutes of Health team spent seven years heading up a worldwide consortium assembling the last 8% of the human genetic code. For their work, they're finalists in this year's Service to America medals program. NIH scientist Sergi Korin, Arong Rhee were on that leadership team, along with senior investigator Adam Philippi, who joins me now. Dr. Philippi, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Now, we all heard about the human genome mapping, and there was a public project. I think Dr. Collins, you know, headed that up years ago. So I guess people assumed it was all done. We had the whole human genome sequence, but apparently not the case.
5: Yeah. In fact, even as recently as a few years ago, I would run into some colleagues on the NIH campus, and we would talk to them about the human genome, the human reference genome, and they would be shocked in some cases to find that if you actually would open up the file of that genome and look literally at the ACGs and Ts, there were some stretches of millions and millions of the letter N for unknown. And those were the bits of the genome that we wanted to go in and tackle. You might've heard it back in the early 2000s when our first draft was released in 2001 as as mapping the human genome. And so one way to think of it is that you've got the map, but there's a bunch of terra incognita on there that are just gaps unknown. Nobody's seen what's in there before. And those were the bits that we were very curious about, Wanted to figure out what was in that unknown.
1: And did the unknown territories relate to some important part of the anatomy, like human intellect, for example, versus the limbic system that every animal has or something like that?
5: Yeah. In fact, they are some of the most important bits of the cell for basic biology, like things like cell division, So the centromeres are where the chromosomes come together and get pulled apart during cell division for anybody that remembers their high school biology. Um, Also, the production of the ribosomes. So these are the molecular machines that crank out the proteins that are needed for every action of your cell. The genes that encode for some of those components of the ribosomes uh, are contained within these unknown regions of the genome. And the hallmark of these unknown bits is that they were the hardest. And they were the hardest because they are highly repetitive. And so if you're thinking of a book, this is like the same phrase repeated over and over and over again, many times. And that makes it difficult to reconstruct. If you think about putting a puzzle together, and it's a jigsaw puzzle, and you have 100 copies of like the same house or the same person, or sometimes I give the Where's Waldo example of the same character repeated many, many times. When you pick up a piece and it has Waldo on it, you don't know which of the Waldos it is. And so figuring out where in the genome that particular copy goes is what makes it difficult. And indeed, it's replicated in some cases because it is important. You need a lot of these machines to crank out your proteins. And so there's a lot of copies of that particular gene, and that makes it difficult to reconstruct.
1: And was the project that you did mostly an informatics computational exercise, or were you still looking into cells with electron microscopes? So
5: it is a long-term study in the sense that, you know, we put the capstone on the end here, but it's really building on 20 years of technology development, both in the private and commercial sectors, and both on the actual biochemistry of reading DNA and the informatics of processing the outputs. The real critical breakthrough happened within the last 10 years or so, so so-called long-read DNA sequencing, and that means very simply that we can read longer stretches of the genome than we were able to back in the early 2000s. um, With the Human Genome Project that Francis and others led, we could cap out at maybe 500 to 700 individual letters at a time, and then you would have to put all of those pieces together like a giant puzzle. That was the computational challenge. Turns out that that was an impossible computational challenge for some regions of the genome. The pieces were just too small. Within the last 10 years, we have new technologies now that can read 10,000, even up to a million characters at a time. And now the puzzle pieces finally reached the length that they're big enough. We were able to develop some new algorithmic approaches to go along with those and stitch those very long pieces back together again and get a very complete and accurate view of this genome map.
1: So the durability of Moore's Law, you might say, is what enabled this to happen 20 years after the original sequencing.
5: Yeah, and it's a really cool hand-in-hand of the computational advancements as well as the biochemistry and the engineering advancements because- I think it's fair to say that these technologies like nanopore sequencing that we use in this approach uh, wouldn't even be possible 20 years ago because you didn't have machine learning of the type that we have now. And a lot of these machine learning algorithms that you hear in the press for natural language processing and so forth are used to translate this electrical signal that we get from the nanopores into predictions of the ACGs and Ts. And so it's really I call myself a bioinformatician, and that means I straddle this line between computer science and algorithms, and the biochemistry and molecular biology. And it's it's really gratifying to see those two fields progress over the last 20 years, and the, the way they have. And neither of them. Um, would have progressed without the other in this case.
1: We're speaking with Dr. Adam Philippi. He is the head of the Human Genome Informatics Section at the National Human Genome Research Institute, part of the NIH. He's also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And is there practical application for this final 8% of the mapping? Can it help medicine advance in some way or, or some other area that might be useful that we could not do before this capstone, as you put it?
5: Yeah, it, it just makes everything easier and more accurate. And so when we talk about medical diagnostics, if you have your genome done in the clinic and they're looking for a causative variant of a disease, they'll map your individual genome and they'll compare it against a known reference genome. And they'll look for differences and we call those differences variants. And if you have differences in critical parts of the genome, those rise to the top as a candidate that might be responsible for your disease. And if they can pinpoint exactly what in your genome caused the disease, the hope is you can develop therapies to then treat it. And so imagine you're looking for this needle in the haystack, but you're missing 8% of the haystack. If you get very unlucky and that needle's in that 8% that you're missing, you will never find it. And so the hope of this project is that some of the rare diseases that have gone yet you know undiscovered in terms of a genetic cause, we know it's a disease, we know it's genetic because you can see the inheritance pattern. From your parents and your grandparents and so forth. But we haven't found the cause. The hope is we'll find some of those causes now in this new 8%. And we're optimistic about that because as we discussed earlier, some of this part of the genome really relates to fundamental cellular processes. And so we think they could have significant effects.
1: And just describe the worldwide consortium aspect of this. The three of you at NIH kind of led this, but it sounds like it was a really vast effort with a lot of coordination around the globe.
5: Yeah, well, first and foremost, you know, the three of us are SAMIs finalists by way of being federal employees. There was a a few other very uh, essential partners that ended up leading this consortium. In fact, I launched this consortium in, you know, around 2017 with Dr. Karen Miga, who's an assistant professor and co-director of the Genomics Center at University of California, Santa Cruz. And Karen was just an incredible partner throughout this project, and it would not have happened without her partnership. Um, and taking this on together. Evan Eichler was also a key contributor at University of Washington and all of our other contributors around the U.S. and the globe. But what was really gratifying about this project is that rather than kind of the initial human genome project that was really kind of a top-down, made at governmental levels, we're going to finish the human genome, let's assign millions and millions of dollars to this project and go, this was much more of a grassroots kind of bottom-up effort that it started with just Karen and I and really no dedicated funding for this project. And we said, let's do it. And we just started building this coalition of people that were similarly interested in these regions of the genome. And you know, like rolling the small little snowball downhill, it just started picking up steam over the years. And we made some really big successes in like 2019, 2020, we finished the first chromosome that was chromosome X at the time. And that really kind of proved to the community that we had the capability of doing this. And people then just started coming out of the woodwork and joining the consortium as we went with all sorts of complementary experiences that in the end, we were able to put together this very nice collection of papers that not just showed the complete genome, but also showed all of the interesting biology that was happening in these unique regions. So it was a very organic growth of a consortium because, you know, when you're doing great science and making exciting discoveries, you know, everybody wants to be a part of it. And so it was not hard to make friends throughout the course of this consortium.
1: And was there a single moment when you all realized, by gosh, we're there, we've got it?
5: Yeah, in fact, um, maybe not the single moment when we were done, but the single moment when we realized that we could be done, if we just put a little more work into it. And that was really brought on by my postdoc at the time, another Sergey, Sergey Nurk, who was a visiting postdoc in my lab at the NIH. He brought some early results to me right at the beginning of the pandemic in the spring of 2020 and kind of i'd like to say laid it on my desk but it was on a computer screen (laughs) he brought his laptop in showed me these early results and this is when we had taken all of the latest dna sequencing technologies and combined it together and showed what we could actually do with the latest and greatest sequencing technologies And some of the methods that sergey himself had developed and the puzzle was snapping together for the first time and there was parts of the genome that we had never seen assemble which is the word we call putting this puzzle together those parts just snapped together just like everything made sense we looked at it and it was that moment where we looked at each other and thought wow we have a chance of actually doing this and so uh, we called together kind of a summer workshop it was supposed to be in person at the time at the nih in the summer of 2020 and we reached out to all of our friends and experts uh, that could help with actually putting the, the finishing final touches on this, organized it, COVID shut everything down. So we ended up having to do that workshop virtually. And over the course of that summer of 2020, really from June through August, we had maybe 50 genome informatics experts looking at this problem and kind of validating it, putting the finishing touches on it and so forth. And by the end of that summer of, of August 2020, we had everything done it was really incredible because you felt almost like an explorer because you were seeing things that no one had seen before. And uh, I remember Sergey remarking to me at one point when he finished this last little puzzle piece, like my hands are shaking, you know, I actually figured this out. We've got this last piece of the puzzle done. So it was really an exciting time that summer, despite all of the craziness that was happening in the larger world around us.
1: And what's next on your research plate?
5: We touched on it a little bit. It's to find out what's going on in this 8%. And so, We hope that there'll be some disease associations so we can really understand now some of these currently misunderstood diseases. We'd like to understand better the genomic function of these regions. So, you know, how exactly the centromeres decide where they're going to line up and separate. And it's really just fundamental biology in a lot of cases, understanding how the genome works. And it's really what drew me into this field. I was originally trained as a computer scientist. And so I think of things in terms of code. And the human genome really is the code of life. You know, the genome has everything in it that when it's uh, interacting with the environment and interacting with all of these proteins and molecules, it has everything it needs to make you, you. And understanding that code so that we can better treat diseases, make better vaccines, and so forth, really we need to understand that human genetic code. And so uh, I'm motivated just from that kind of basic science principle of wanting to understand how things work. That's always been my mindset. I kind of have an engineering mindset of just wanting to know how things work. And in this case, I've been spending the last 20 years of my career trying to figure out how genomes
1: work. Dr. Adam Philippi is head of the Human Genome Informatics Section at the National Human Genome Research Institute. That's part of the NIH. Along with Dr. Sergey Koren and Arang Rhee, he's a finalist in this year's Service to America medals program. Thanks so much for joining me.
5: Thanks so much for having us, Tom. It's a pleasure to share our work with your listeners.
1: And we'll post this interview along with all of our Sammy's finalists at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Employees at the Social Security Administration are just a few small steps away from solidifying benefits in telework eligibility, training and career development, and much more. That's after SSA reached an agreement with its biggest union. american federation of government employees but union leaders are still eyeing more for a workforce which has struggled for years with high turnover and equally high workloads federal news networks drew friedman joins me now with the details and first of all what's updated in this new agreement and how long does this one run for drew
6: so this agreement will last until october 2029 so another six years or just a little over six years from now and it covers a lot of different provisions. I believe it's six total. Some of the big ones, though, of course, you have a couple different opportunities for telework, which are going to be solidified through 2029 now. This isn't overall telework policy, but some telework in some specific instances. So, for example, if an SSA employee has to go out of town for a couple of months at a time, they're allowed something called a temporary compassionate assignment so they can work remotely for up to two months. There's also going to be virtual de- details available to SSA employees so they can learn about different agency components and different jobs that are available with within SSA and those can be done remotely. And then also they extended a memorandum of understanding where employees who have minor disciplinary actions against them can still telework. So there's a couple things that were, you know, in existence and just solidified for now another six years. Along with the telework, there's also training and career development opportunities for SSA employees now. So agency and union leaders are going to, under the new agreement, work together to develop and improve the training models that SSA employees have. Jessica LaPointe, who's president of AFGE Council 220, she explained more why that training development is so important.
2: This is a huge
3: article for us because our training... At SSA is a major pain point within the agency based on agency focus groups and our own surveys. We have concluded that our training is sorely inadequate and it's resulting in a 17% attrition rate for new hires.
1: All right, so they seem to have solved that one. Then, Drew, what did the negotiations look like? And what are some of those challenges besides training that she mentioned?
6: AFGE and SSA opened these six contract provisions back in April, so it's been months of negotiations. And I think there was some initial contention between the agency and union leaders, but ultimately they were able to come to this uh, decision together. There have been a lot of problems at SSA in the workforce for a lot many years now. Uh, they have for in 2022 they had their biggest um, shortage of employees in more than 25 years. There was also high attrition, a lot of people leaving the agency during the COVID 19 pandemic, and then now of course that means there's a lot higher workloads for SSA employees who stayed in their field office positions. That is leading to poor work life balance, and then that coupled with limited training opportunities, limited telework, the union says the pay is pretty low as well. So there's all these issues that are kind of combining into a really tough time for SSA. And they actually placed last in the best places to work rankings, this most recent go around with the Partnership for Public Service. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And I think that, you know, coming to this tentative agreement between AFGE and SSA, they seem to think this is going to be a positive step for, for the workforce.
1: Well, they weren't quite as bad as the Bureau of Prisons, but they were pretty far down there. And of course, this all comes in the context of The retirement – the shockwave of retirement of the baby boomers still hitting Social Security. So the rosters are growing – Thousands literally every day of the calendar year, so it's kind of important, and what was the reaction? Were they happy? Were they like two boxers, both exhausted, or were at the end of the negotiations the uh, the agency and the union saying, hey, that came out pretty good.
6: yeah, I think you can imagine that after negotiating for months, I think everyone was pretty pleased with the outcome. The SSA press officers told me that he felt optimistic about the results and you know, even though it's tentative, not fully in place yet. It seems like it's, it's on the right track. And AFG leaders as well were, you know, very positive about these changes. I mentioned telework and career training, but there were a lot of other things included in there as well. Things like child and elder care, lactation services for SSA employees who are nursing, who have to work. And, you know, just a lot of little things that can really add up and make a difference for these employees. Yeah,
1: some of those things seem pretty simple to do. I mean, if you want to do it, it's not hard like lactation services. You need a curtain. You know, or a, a place, and put paper over the window, and you know, there it is. They do right. it in airports. Now. Yeah,
6: it was it was sim- as simple as you know, installing a mini fridge that's specifically meant for that, and that's you know, even that small of a change can make a big difference. Yeah, for, for, the for grand
1: employees. sum of seventy nine dollars, you can get a, you know a nice <laughs> little refrigerator. All right, and now this agreement has to be ratified, right, by the rank and file.
6: Right, so that once the AFGE members, which there are forty two thousand of them across the country, once they ratify the new provisions and that new contract, then it'll stay in place. As I said, until October twenty twenty nine. There's also an official agency sign off at the end of everything. But you know, if everything goes according to plan, this this should be in place for another six years.
1: Wow, six years! That'll be after the end of whatever administration comes. Less so, comes next. So. We uh, have no idea who the president might be at that point or what their philosophy is going to be. All right. Now, at the top, we mentioned that beyond these things that are in this new agreement, the AFGE still is trying to get some more out of Social Security. What else do they want?
6: One thing that is top of mind for AFGE still is they've said that telework is going to be an uphill battle. So they've proposed a 10-year study at field offices to look at, you know, can we add telework opportunities for employees, especially those who are more seasoned. So, you know, the more years that you spend at SSA, maybe you can get a little bit more telework opportunity and seeing how that might impact retention within the agency. They're also looking for a budget actually above what the Biden administration has requested for fiscal 2024. And SSA as well has said that, you know, at least within the Biden administration's request that funding is going to be crucial to actually implement and carry out a lot of these contract provisions and going beyond that as well. It seems like this is a positive step in the right direction, but LaPointe said, you know, there's still more ahead.
3: So time will tell truly how how the employees feel about this new contract. But in terms of just the, the work we put in, we feel like we have in the moment succeeded. If we don't get the budget that we need, that's gonna be um, a huge blow to that morale. But just in terms of having this contract extended until 2029 is also extremely hopeful. We got our official time back as a union so we can represent employees and that's locked into the contract for the next six years as well. For the moment, we're feeling good, but we do understand the uphill battle ahead.
6: And that's Jessica Lapointe, who's president of Council 220.
1: And we've been talking to Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much for that report. Thank you, Tom. And check out her stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.